good morning, good afternoon, good night, whatever time of day it is, good night. I'm Giovanni, and this is The G Truth, and I have a good amount of stuff to talk about today. I have the Conference Championships, NFC, AFC, uh, Chiefs, and Titans, Niners, and Packers. I definitely want to talk about that. And then I'm going to go back to basketball, where I'm more at home and more uh, at ease to talk about. I have two teams and two players on those teams that I want to talk about. You can probably tell from the title of the podcast uh, video. It's the Bucks, and I'm going to be talking about Giannis and his jump shot. And also uh, the Oklahoma State Thunder and Shea Gildas Alexander's development. And I want to talk about that a while ago during during my break. Um, but I, but I never got to it. Uh, and, and that was way before his 20-point, 20 20-rebound 20 10 assist game where I want to talk about his development and how good he is and how much I saw from that. Um, but why don't we dive right in. So let's start off with the 49ers and Packers. In Week 12 of the regular season, both of these teams, the Niners and the Packers, faced each other in Levi Stadium where the Niners won by a whopping 37-8. to points. It's a 29-point blowout. And in the first half, the Niners were up uh, 23-zip, and the Packers just couldn't move the ball, uh, running and passing. They just couldn't move the ball, and then they eventually got down the field, and then they turned it over on downs. I think Aaron Jones got stuffed on a fourth and one. And adding to that where the Niners went up 10-zip early on due to great field position, both by uh, a bad punt as well as a fumble uh, by Aaron Rodgers where it led to an easy 10 points for, for the 49ers. And that gives a lot of must-dos for the Packers to win or even have a shot at winning back at Levi Stadium this Sunday. The Packers just aren't stacked at the wide receiver position like the 49ers are. They don't have as many weapons as the Niners do. And their main guy is Devontae Adams, and that's the guy that uh, Aaron Rodgers targets the most, and they need to find someone else. And I believe that that someone else is in the running game with the running backs, Jamal Williams and Aaron Jones. They are a great one-two punch dynamic duo, but they were completely, practically shut down in the first half of Week 12. Yes, I know the numbers say that they got maybe 50 yards each, but in that first half they were getting nothing. And in the second half when they started, you know, moving the ball a bit more, it's pretty much over. It's completely, pretty much over. So, I think that they need to get going early. And, and part of that's to break open that defense of the 49ers so that Aaron Rodgers can, you know, do Aaron Rodgers things. And, 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 and that run game needs to get going, not only for Aaron Rodgers' sake, but because the Packers just cannot go down by double digits and expect to win. They cannot expect to go down by double digits early on in that game to the 49ers, where the Niners are actually really good at playing uh, keep ahead, where where as soon as they get that lead, they're very, very good at keeping it. And you you got to get that offensive, um, or, or that offense going with Aaron Rodgers at, at the wheel. you got to get that going early on in order to keep up with the 49ers. That's the only way that you can expect to win, is to get that offense going, and that starts with a running game. And that's going to be very, very tough with that defensive line and that linebacking core, as well as the cornerbacks and safeties of uh, the 49ers. And, and, and that also brings up another point, that 
The Packers cannot shoot themselves in the foot with turnovers, whether it's interceptions or fumbles. They cannot. As soon as they do that, you're taking away points or potential points for your team off the board. And in some situations, you're giving them right to the 49ers, who will definitely capitalize on them as much as possible. Now, on the defensive side, I talk about the offensive side, and it's very, very difficult in order for them to get going. Defensively, the Packers need to stop the Niners' ground game. So on offense, they need to get the ground game going, and on defense, they need to stop the Niners' running game and then move them to the passing game. And I know that's still a tall order because they got a plethora of wide receivers, including George Kittle, even though he's a tight end. I mean, the guy has the speed and and just the catching ability of a wide receiver while having the size of a tight end. He, he's an incredible player. Just like just hone in on him for, for maybe a drive, and you'll see that he is phenomenal, if you don't believe me. Um... Like I said, it's tough to stop the Niners, but it does prevent the Niners from taking away possessions uh, by, by taking away the clock by running the ball. And instead, you'll be doing that if if you end up getting that running game going where you can take off possessions from the 49ers. But also, you had a double kill as much as possible. And honestly, it, it, it's, it's a tough situation for the Packers to be in defensively where you want to take away the, you want to take away the run game but then the passing game by the Niners is so lethal that you got to focus on Kittle but then you have all these other wide receivers to focus on and Kyle Shanahan does a great job of getting these guys wide open with great routes and breaking open the defense that at, at that point you just gotta be like hopefully our guys can make a play and that, that's that's part of what, what what I think the Packers are relying on that. Let's hope our guys make a play. And let's just will or just hope that Aaron Rodgers does Aaron Rodgers things and and gives us a chance at winning it. So it's a lot of tough, tough order orders for the Packers to carry out. Making sure they don't shoot themselves in the foot, get that running game going against that beast of a of a defense, and stopping the Niners running game, which has been tough to do all season, and trying to move them trying to move them to a passing game where they're also slightly less, but still very, very lethal. So although it's very, very tough, I believe that the Packers can do it, but not for the whole game. Definitely not for the whole game. I believe that the Packers will be able to withstand three quarters or maybe two and a half to three quarters of of that 49ers offense and that 49ers defense and getting through it. But I think that after that, Kyle Shanahan just has the experience uh, to, and he's been here before, he has the experience with the Atlanta Falcons to break open a game. And I think that's exactly what the Niners will do while Matt LaFleur, it, it's going to be a learning moment for him. He's young, but he doesn't have that same experience of being in this situation. And although Aaron Rodgers does, but Kyle Shanahan, the coach, does not. And... I think the Packers are not going to be able to keep up all the way through with the 49ers, and I think that the 49ers will break away at the end of the game to end up winning and go to Miami. So now I'm going to talk about the AFC side, which is the Chiefs against the Titans. And, wow, there's a lot to unpackage. Um, but I, I'm, I'm going to keep it very, very simple. So Chiefs and Titans. This is a very, very interesting game that I think will go down to the wire and I think that most people now are 
are are coming to that conclusion, whether it's because they think it's funny that the Tennessee Titans are a sixth seed making noise, or they truly believe that this has matchups written all over it. This has mat um, mismatches uh, on on the defensive side for both teams written all over it. And when when talking about these two teams, we, we know the names that pop up. We have Patrick Mahomes, who is, I, I think, the best quarterback in the league and will be for a good amount of time. Derrick Henry, who is a bulldozer, uh, not bulldozer, bulldozer of a running back. Andy Reid, who is an offensive mastermind. And then you have Mike Vrabel, who has gotten the most defensively and emotionally from his team, being an ex-football player himself. And then you have... Um, Tyree Kill, who who came out and was like, yeah, no one can cover us as wide receivers because we're that fast. And part of that's true, but part of it's not. There's so much unpackaged on the offensive side and defensive side for both the teams, but I'm going to keep it very, very simple. And I think that when I simplify it, to me, there is one person that I want to talk about who I believe can can change the the coin flip uh, of this game, and I and I believe that that is Steve Spagnola of the Kansas City Chiefs. He is the Chiefs defensive coordinator. So I, I'm gonna give a brief back background history on Steve on uh, Steve Spagnola. Wow, I cannot say his name. Steve Spagnola. So just some brief background history. He was the defensive assistant, defensive backs coach. Linebackers coach all at different times. He was the uh, defensive assistant first for a bit, and then the, the defensive backs coach for a bit, and then, and then the linebackers coach for a bit uh, throughout his tenure with the Philadelphia Eagles, where he was coaching under Andy Reid. So there's a bit of familiarity between him and Andy Reid, which is part of the reason why he ended up getting uh, the job with the Chiefs, because there is some familiarity, and they're like, okay, you know, let's see if we can get something going and get to the Super Bowl and win. And then after the Eagles, he joined the Giants in the 2007-2008 seasons where, where he played a key role in, in defeating the undefeated Patriots who had the highest scoring offense in NFL history at that time. At that time. And he, and he helped hold them to 14 points, 16-0, and 0, high, highest scoring offense in NFL history at that moment. and. They only got 14 points in the Super Bowl, and the Giants won. We know how it goes. They won. But then from there, after leaving the Giants, he he bounced around the league. He had His success went like this. It, 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 it peaked very, very fast, and then it just crashed, where he had head coaching jobs and really go well. He had some, I think, defensive coordinating, defensive coordinating jobs, and it just didn't go well. And then he got back to the Giants for a bit, and then he was eventually... Fired, and I think that's when his story gets more interesting, to be honest. And instead of jumping back in, into the coaching carousel or the chaos um, of 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 um, of coaching that that he's been going through, um, he decided to take some time off. And it was very very risky because he had not been having that much success. And at that point, you don't really know if people are gonna pick up the phone after a year uh, to to call you and, and offer you a job out of the way. But he decided that that'd be best for him, for his success, for, for his 
for his nature, for his being, to take a year off from coaching football and just give himself some time. Just give himself a year off. And then after that, you know, see if any teams are interested. And I think that that's both risky, but I think that it was smart and very, very good of him. Because, and, and, and I did this a bit, where during my break, it it gave me a lot of ideas where, you know, just one day you're like, wow, I if, if, if I was working and I was, like, writing all this stuff down for, for, for this podcast, I, w- I would I'd have completely ignored it or I would have pushed it off or I just wouldn't have come back to it later on. Whereas during the break, I'm like, wow, that that would be amazing to talk about, and I want to dive further into that. And, th- and I think that that was some of what Steve Spagnola got, where he he could open himself to new perspective, new ideas, and really delve into it rather than having to teach it to other football players, to reteach it to other football players. And instead, he could just take some time to be a student himself of, of the game and really just sit down, watch some film, and learn for himself, and learn some new things, too. And, and so during his time away, he decided uh, to go into the NFL Films headquarters. He lives pretty close to it. Uh, it was in an article that, that, that I read um, talking about this. And, and and he'd just go there and just pull up a chair, pull up a table, get a whole bunch of papers, create a mess, and just study film without worrying for the next game, or, or like I said, teaching his players and said he could just sit down watch the film focus in on whatever he wanted to focus on in on he i think he said that he initially focused in on on the defensive line because he coached linebackers and cornerbacks but he never really focused on the defensive line and so he could study from the league best like aaron donald or 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 as a collective unit like the chiefs defense um not Overall wise, but the defensive line from last year was spectacular, getting a lot, a lot of sacks. Or even the Rams in general, um, not not necessarily uh, Aaron Donald by himself. But he could study the he could study the league best individually and collectively on the defensive side and offensive side of his shows, and just learn and soak it all up. And I think that uh, by having that time off, he developed as a football coach, learned a lot of new things, I believe. But also as a person, and that, and that specifically, you bring that to a locker room, and you get a different level of respect, and you have a lot different way of approaching situations as a coach, I believe. Um, and 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 now that he's with the Chiefs, the Chiefs have the seventh best scoring defense and eighth best pass defense, but their run defense is more to the bottom of the spectrum, which is where I think that a lot of people are like. Ooh, maybe the Titans can get an upset right here. But I believe that Steve Spagnola, the the, the uh, Titans beat them 35-32 earlier in the season. And I think that Steve Spagnola has something up his sleeve for this. And I think that he he has made the right adjustments. And I have my faith in that in that squad, especially in Steve Spagnola. And also the offensive side, of course, of the Sheets with Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes and all those weapons um, that, 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 that they have. So I believe that uh, Steve Spagnuolo has something up his sleeve to handle Derrick Henry, to slow him down, not not to completely stop him by any means, because you cannot stop Derrick Henry. He has just been going crazy. But you can limit his production and limit the efficiency and and how much of that production actually uh, helps that team. If it's just garbage yards, like three yards, that you know it's fourth and ten or not fourth and ten, uh, third and ten, and he gets like three four yards, 
if they chose to run it, I guess, in that situation. Um, or maybe first and 15, and he gets three yards, and at that point, you're like, you know what, that's okay. So I believe that Steve Spagnuolo has a plan, and that the Chiefs will just do enough, especially with Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid on the other side of the football, to get on the other side of that 35-32 loss into a win, and also to Miami, and I believe that they have the skills and the talent and the coaching required in order to win the Super Bowl. All right, so I'm going to shift gears, for, actually shift sports entirely from the football to basketball. And I want to talk about the Milwaukee Bucks first. So, and, and, and it's not so much breaking them down, but it's more, I just, I just want to talk about them. So the Milwaukee Bucks have the best record in the NBA and are on pace to hit the 70-win mark, which only two other teams have done, you know, the Bulls and the Warriors. And in doing so, they they have the, so far, right now, the best defense in the league, based on defensive rating, and the second best offense, also based on offense rating. And in part, it has to do with, they're being led by MVP candidate, and also uh, last year's MVP winner, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Yes, I can say his name pretty nicely, Giannis Antetokounmpo. As I say that, I'm probably going to miss it farther along the line. And to me, I don't want to break them down, but I just want to look at them and say they remind me so much of the Golden State Warriors, and and, and it's the pre-KD Warriors. And you can say, all right, that's 2014, 2015, where they came out of the blue. I think that's more of last season or the year before that. Probably last it, probably last season. Um, and I think this season is more reminiscent of the 2015, 2016 Warriors. Um, mainly because you look at that and you're like, wow, Sandy wins, you know, the Warriors, Bulls, you know, something along those lines. But to me, they are more reminiscent of the Warriors. Not because they are dominant or shoot a lot of threes or have an MVP on their team who could, you know, repeat this year. Probably probably not unanimously. Um, and, and that MVP is accompanied by an all-star shooter. Granted, Chris Middleton just got his all-star last season while Clay while Clay has been, you know, an all-star for quite some time now. Um although although those are real comparisons and true comparisons that are there and you can make arguments for. I believe that they're more reminiscent of the 2015-2016 Warriors to me because they are led by an extremely likable player. In Giannis and Skumpo, and they have an extremely likable team that anyone and everyone can root for and should root for, I believe. And and you look at that team, you look at that squad, they truly enjoy themselves. Just like the 2015-2016 Warriors, I believe, truly enjoy themselves until, of course, they lost in the finals. But you look throughout that season, they were having the time of their lives. And during that time, everyone on Instagram were like, wow, I love these Warriors. And... Instagram, social media, everywhere. It wasn't a lot of like, oh, you know, they have KD, blah, 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 blah. It was like, wow, that little guy, Steph Curry, is doing all this crazy stuff. And it's just, wow. And, and you and you have that same thing with Giannis Antetokounmpo with his zero-step dunks or even the dunk where he jumped over, I think, a Tim Hardaway Jr. And you just look at that and you're like, what? That's humanly possible? That's, wow, I did not see that coming. And you're, and you're just mind blown and you, you want to see more of it. Just like how when Steph Curry would pull up from 35, 
40 from half court like it was nothing and you just be like what the heck how come he wasn't doing this before this is out of the blue this is crazy and he'd do it multiple games and you'd be still in awe still shocked at what he was doing but then also as a team you know the Warriors had their own thing going on with their own three-point uh, shooting and their own celebrations but then you have the the uh, Lopez brothers and and Giannis Antetokounmpo, and just as a team, they're doing their own WWE sort of thing with the Cobra, and it's just, it's weird, but again, you go on social media, and people are loving it, they're like, wow, this is hilarious, and and I think last time, uh, it was the Lopez brothers got back at Giannis Antetokounmpo and defeated him, uh, as opposed to Giannis beating Robin Lopez and pinning him. It was the opposite way around. And and they truly enjoy themselves as a team. Their chemistry is skyrocket, just like the 73 and 9 Warriors. And I think that they, to me, are very, very reminiscent of the Warriors in that way. And I don't really have a point to any of this. I just wanted to talk about that. And, and I think that they remind me a lot of the Warriors. Except I think that they have a really, really good shot at winning the ring. Whereas the worst and not. I mean, they had a good shot, but they just didn't. Um, so, I, I, I just wanted to talk about the Milwaukee Bucks just for a bit. And why they reminded me of the Warriors, particularly. And and, and I just found it really, really cool that there is a team out there that people on social media, in, in generally, will not go out of their way to criticize or critique. And really band together and root for it, even, even though it's a small market team. Because they're likable a lot, especially their superstar is likable, just like how Steph Curry at, at the peak was very, very likable, just like the Warriors. And I think that, that, I, that, that that's really all, all I wanted to say about the Milwaukee Bucks, is that they're completely, really, really likable. So now I want to go a bit more into the, to the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, I already covered the general sort of idea with them that I really, really like. But I want to delve into Giannis Antetokounmpo, especially his jump shot. And I know that uh, this is very, very, you know, one-sided. People are like, you know, he needs a jump shot. He needs a three. And I'm with you. I, I agree. He needs a jump shot. But I'm not sure if that's, you know, the biggest problem for him right now. So let's get into why I believe that. So Giannis Antetokounmpo. Giannis Antetokounmpo is having another MVP season, one that is slightly better, statistically speaking, than last season's MVP performance. And and everyone says on social media, on Twitter, on well, so Twitter is part of social media, on on their own um, talk shows or podcasts that Giannis needs a three ball. Imagine what he would do if he had a three point shot. He could stretch the defense, and there'd be no way to guard him, and he'd just be unstoppable. And I, I was on the train on the same train of thought because I was like, you know, that makes sense. You know, theoretically, he, he gets a three point shot. They they're forced to you know go up on him. And he can just blow right by them, dunk it. He can score fifty points, whatever. But then I shifted my my train of thought, and I was like, you know what? I'm not sure if that's true anymore. And now I believe that he needs a different shot, um, which, I'll, which, which I'll eventually get to. But I want to show you why I left the three-ball idea. So Giannis is currently shooting 32.4% from the, 
from three, which is a great increase from last year's 25.6%. And this year, um, that's 32.4% from three on 204 shots, so not a high volume, but a good amount. Yet, teams willingly let him shoot, and I believe that will continue in the playoffs. And now, and now you're thinking, but that's why he needs a three ball, so that when they leave him open, he can you know drain it, and that's an easy bucket. And 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 again, I'll 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 show you why I believe that's not the case. His three point percentage currently at thirty two point four percent is better than Jamal Murray, Dario Saric. Well, as I'm recording this, Jamal Murray, Dario Saric, Garrett Temple, Terrence Ferguson, Luka Doncic, Gary Harris. Andrew Wiggins, Bradley Beal, Jay Crowder, uh, Brooke Lopez, Austin Rivers, Julius Randle, Spencer Dinwiddie, and Jordan Poole. Now, there's a lot of shooters on that list, and I know some of those shooters shoot at a very low volume, and some of them shoot at a very high clip. But two, two, two of the players were within 10 three-point shot attempts of Giannis, and, that, and those two players were Jamal Murray and Andrew Wiggins. And... And, and, and now you're like, okay, where are you going now? And, and, and I'll tell you, both of those players, Jamal Murray and Andrew Wiggins, granted they're a bit smaller than Giannis, both have a hand in their face whenever they shoot. They're, they are not left wide open like Giannis Antetokounmpo. He just does not have a hand in his face. And that probably will continue um until he shoots maybe 35% from three. And even then, I have my doubts. And I think that it, it really is that when he gets closer to 40%, if that ever happens, that he'll, he really will have a hand in his face most of the time. And, and, and now you're like, okay, you know what? That's fine. If, if anything, that's more of a reason for him to improve the three. Because like I said, easy bucket. He's wide open. You know, he shoots it. He gets it down. Easy, easy bucket. From there, and that's just an easy three points. But to me, that's not quite my point because thirty-two point five percent, right? Yeah, no, thirty-two point four percent. He's gonna miss most of the time, and he's not a a uh, catch and shoot shooter. He's not a you know shooter that ends up heating up and gets on fire like a Clay Thompson or Chris Middleton, where where they get on fire really, really quickly, and once they're on fire, it's hard to turn them off. He's in that type of player. He's, you know, clank, clank, you know, miss, clank, 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 miss, make, make eventually. Um, and so, so he's going to miss those shots most of the time. And at that point, you're not utilizing him to the most efficient that he could be in the paint, where he's closer to the basket rather than from three, where although he may make a couple every now and then, it's just not the same effect on a, the team or fans emotionally or, or or putting himself or putting him in the best possible situation where he can score, which is in the paint close to the, to the hoop. And when he misses, you know, the team misses out on points because they're trying to go for a three ball. So the shot that I believe that Giannis Antetokounmpo needs as of right now is not a three, but a floater. If you look at all the games that Giannis plays, and I found this crazy too because it just popped into my head. It's like, boom, floater. He does not have a floater. I, I was genuinely surprised. He may have an occasional, like, you know, post and like a little hook shot or, or a little, you know, float shot. But 
it's not quite a floater where he's running into the paint and then, you know, James Harden just floating. Just a little floater. And I believe that a floater would allow Giannis to be even more dominant in the paint where he really should be rather than on the three-point line, like most people say. And I, I, I think it's just, if he adds a floater to his game, I think there's so much that that, that can do. And it's a lot easier to, to improve on than, say, a three-point shot and a lot quicker to to implement than a three-point shot into his game. And it goes with his flow rather than being disrupted by having to settle back for a three-point shot. And, and, and I want the conversation to be, imagine what he could do with the floater. Imagine how much that would put defenses in, or defenders in quite the uh, position. Because now you have to watch out for the Eurostep dunk. You have to watch him for dunking on your face or for doing a, a nice little finger roll. Uh, you had that one crazy shot where he switched his hands back and forth to do that crazy layup against uh, the Pistons, I believe. And then you add that with a floater where... I mean, you either, because at that point he can like, you know, fake the floater and then do, do the stuff anyways and then dunk it on you or, or like you're getting ready for, for that dunk and he just has a little floater over you. And, and, and at that point it's going uncontested because you're worrying for all these other different things. He has that floater, it's going uncontested and think about it. If that bounces back, that's a put back dunk where he can just jump, jump over the defender. But I think that ultimately... The defense that teams play against him, which is the wall defense, where they just crowd the paint area and put their hands up, and eventually, you know, he, he just can't do anything because there's just a lot of hands in his face, and he ends up turning the ball over, and that has worked in the past against the Celtics especially. Um, I believe that the floater would do a great, great job against that because now you, because now you have these defenders just putting their hands up on either, on either side of the paint, preventing the Eurostep and you have one guy who's following him, making sure that he goes left or right, you have that floater right there. Maybe you, get, you do a little stop, that guy goes a bit sliding, you do that floater, no one's jumping to block it at all. You do that, you do that Euro step, you're going right into a defender. You're, they're, you're playing right into their hands. You do that floater, oof, it is over. Because none of those teams are adjusting their wall defense. Because he's shooting threes. No one is going to do that. In the playoffs, everyone will be playing a wall defense against Giannis. Even though he has improved his three-point shot to a 32.4%. And you already saw other players, Jamal Murray, Andrew Wiggins, Dario Sarge, other three-point shooters around the league, Luka Doncic, have, have, a player, have players putting a hand on their face, preventing them, preventing them from shooting threes. Whereas Giannis, he's shooting better than them. He's shooting better, better than that. He's shooting better than them, but he just does not have that hand in his face. So I don't think that improving his three is the most pressing issue for him right now. I think that it is breaking out of that wall defense that defenders are playing and teams are playing against them. Now, I want to make it especially clear. I'm not saying Giannis should not shoot threes or get better at it. I think it's great that, that he's improving his three-point shot and getting better at it because eventually that will show and defenders will have to guard him. But I just don't think that that's happening now. And I think that now he needs a floater instead. I like him shooting threes. I like that he's improving it. It shows that he really cares and wants to get better and wants to be one of the best in the league. And he probably is arguably that right now. But I'm saying that shooting threes 
at a consistent rate at a good at a better field goal at a better field goal percentage where it becomes a legitimate threat to other teams that is a long-term solution for a Milwaukee Bucks team that's looking to win right now and if anything the floater would force the defense to get out of the wall defense and is more of a short-term uh, solution to winning right now for for the Bucks and for Giannis so if, if you disagree with me just right off the bat just think about it for a bit just mull it over don't think too hard about it but just 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 let it kind of soak in watch the Bucks play I think they play Saturday night which is when I'm recording this um just watch it notice that he doesn't do any floaters you can watch this three-point shot, but watch the defense. Watch him in particular, and just just think about it for a bit. And if you still and if you still disagree with me about him needing a floater, and not so much of a three-point shot, even though even though three-point shot is fine, if you still disagree with me, then just wait for the playoffs. And even then, if you disagree with me, then I don't know what to say. But I believe that Giannis Antetokounmpo, the Greek freak, needs a floater immediately right now. And I think that that will boost his chances of winning the finals with the Bucks now. So I, I, I talked I talked about the Bucks and I talked about uh, the Oklahoma. Uh, sorry, I talked about the Bucks and Giannis Antetokounmpo. Wow, my speech has derailed as, as, uh, as I said it would with, with saying his name. But now I want to talk about the Oklahoma City Thunder, who is now on the Western Conference. So I talked about an Eastern Conference team, now moving over to the Western Conference with OKC. And again, it's not so much breaking them down, it's more of just, you know, just, just acknowledging them, because I think that's good, because they get ignored. A lot, a lot of the small market teams get ignored in social media, and, you know, you see one or two highlights, and you're like, okay, that's cool, but you don't really see any more, and there's a lot of cool things that they do that, that they have to go to the extreme to get noticed whether it be on platforms like social media or on you know talk shows and stuff like that so i, I just want to acknowledge the oklahoma state thunder for, for a bit so many people had ridden off the thunder after trading westbrook and getting a supposed locker room cancer in cp3 in return and i had that same belief now i did not completely write them off but and i, I gave them a small chance of you know making the playoffs and I was like, you know, CP3, you know, you have a good roster. Uh, you have Gallinari, you have Steven Adams, you have Shea Gilders-Alexander, who I really, really like, and I'll get to later on. Um, you have Chris Paul, of course. You have a pretty solid bench with uh, Dennis Schroeder coming off. You have um, Mike Muscala as well. You have uh, Hamadou Diallo. I'm pretty sure that's how you say his name. Uh, you have a Terrence Ferguson. You have uh, Nadir. You have a really, really good roster, a solid roster. And I was like, you know, this roster could, you know, make make the playoffs. But during that time, I was like, you know, the Warriors, they're healthy, so maybe they do something. But obviously now the Warriors are not healthy. And it opened up a spot for, you know, the, the Thunder to come right in. And and I got to say, for all the talk that I did on the Thunder, I did not expect this. I was like, you know, maybe they make the playoffs. But I did not expect this level of competitiveness. Uh, from from them, they're competitive in almost every single game. They they do a great job of of and and that starts with uh, CP3. They do a great job offensively and defensively. Where and that puts them in the in games all the time. Whether 
it's against the Lakers or Clippers or whoever, it puts them in the game. And I just want to call out CP3. He's done a tremendous job meeting this offense and defense uh, for the Thunder and to getting them uh, and and getting them to a winning record in the Western Conference, where a lot of people doubted them. And I also want to talk about Shake uh, Gilgis Alexander. He's been tremendous. He had that 20 point, 20 rebound, 10 assist game, and he's just been incredible. I said before the season that that the Thunder want him to get maybe 17 to 20 points per game, and he's I think it, he, he he's around there. I don't know the exact. I can't remember the exact number. Um, but he's definitely around there, and I, and I think that's really, really cool that he's found a place where he can flourish, especially even with CP3 having the ball most of the time and him sharing the court with two other point guards, CP3 and Dennis Schroeder. And some, sometimes they roll out a, a small ball lineup where it's just the three of them, and then, you know, I think small forwards or Steven Adams or something like that. I, I don't remember. Uh, but three point guards at the same time, which is ridiculous. But, like I said, they have a really, really nice roster with uh, Stephen Adams, Scalinari, Schroeder, Ferguson, Diallo, Mike Muscala. They have a couple other players, like, like Nadir, that do a great job of, of just playing their role. And it seems to me that, ultimately, CP3 wants his revenge, but ultimately even more redemption in the eyes of the media and fans of the negative perception that he got um, this past season of being a cancer in the locker room. And throughout his career, actually, just speaking cancer in the locker room and just getting redemption for that this season, I believe that that's on the top of his list and showing that, you know, he's still capable of leading a team to the playoffs and that you should never count him out. And he's doing a great job at that. And and honestly, I'm, I'm just really proud of, of CP3 and I'm really happy for for him and for the Thunder organization and their fans for all the trouble that they've gone through. And they're still competitive. And they have a really, really bright future with a young core that's staying competitive right now and winning. But ultimately, I'm proud of them for proving the doubters wrong. So I talked about the Oklahoma State Thunder now. And I want to talk about one of the players that had a 20-point, 20 rebound, 10 assist, triple-double. And that is Shea Gilgis-Alexander. And, I mean, he's phenomenal. I wanted to talk about Shea Gilgis Alexander over the break because he fascinates me. And this was before the 20 point, 20 rebound, 10 assists game where, you know, people were going crazy. And that's when he really, people were like, what? They were like, wow, he's doing this? He was on the Clippers last year and he kind of went under the radar. And now with the Thunder, you know, he's doing spectacularly. And I, and I wanted to talk about him before then because I, I didn't quite see that coming. No one sees that coming. But I, I was like, you know, this guy is special, and he's improving in some ways that that I, I find really, really good, and that people I don't think are noticing as much. And and a lot of that's on the offensive side of the ball. His passing and defensive skills are are really, really good, but that's not where my focus is um, with his style of play, or, or what or what I want to focus on for right now. I'm more focused on the way that he scores and handles the ball. Right now, I love the way that, that, that he scores because it's not three-point oriented or centric at all. He knows his strengths. He knows that he's not, you know, a phenomenal three-point shooter. And he does a great job of using picks with Steven Adams or any other big guy that, that's on the court. And a good amount of those screens 
has to do with him finding other players open or getting a really nice mid-range shot as well as attacking the points, uh, not points, attacking the paint consistently, which is where he gets a majority of his points. I think it's over 50-60% I think of his points come from there, from, from the paint, which I find incredible. And, and just watching him play reminds me so much of CP3, and that's because CP3 is his teammate, and I find that amazing. I don't know if CP3 has taken Shea under his wing, um, or, or something along those lines, or if Shea is just picking up uh, how, how CP3 plays, and is like, wow, that's a really good and efficient way of play. Let me emulate that as much as possible. But I, I, I like the influence of CP3 on, on Shea. Um, he, he doesn't force any shots like CP3 does. He, uh, CP3, CP3 does not force any shots, and I think CP, um, Shea does, does the exact same thing. He does not force any shots unless he's in rhythm and he's feeling it and he feels like, you know, heat check. Or if late in games, desperate times for call for desperate measures, where CP3 shows up in those late moments. And just like CP3, a good amount of his points come from the mid-range and the paint which shows me a good shot selection, where, where again, he's not forcing it, he's taking good shots. And I think that his shot selection and his per, um, field goal percentage, although it's not really that high, I think it's at like 47-ish percent, um, it'll, it'll improve as time goes. He's 21 years old, so he's tons of time to improve with the Thunder, and I think that he will do that with CP3 along his side. And... And I think from there, I just want I just want him to hone in on his passing ability so that he can be a bit more like CP3. He's a bit more athletic than CP3, but I want him to focus on the passing ability as well so that he gets everyone involved. And I know it's a bit tougher for him to do that, especially with CP3 handling the, the ball a lot more and him occasionally handling it when Schroeder's on, on the court. But I think that, that Jay Gilgis-Alexander is a great player. He's really good. And his numbers aren't as high as people think that they should be, or I didn't think that they should be, because he shares the court with CP3 and Dan Shorter, like I said. But I want him to get that high-level vision, and and honestly, the stats don't need to show it. I, I just need to see it with my eyes, you know, just eye test it. But, I mean, he's 21 years old. He has a long road ahead of him. He can improve a lot, and he has a lot going good for him. And he reminds me so much of CP3, which I, th which I, I think is good. As, as long as he takes away the positive from CP3, I think that he's set on the right track to be one, one of the best point guards in the league in the future. But man, he, he is good. He has a very bright future in the league, and especially on an Oklahoma City roster that is young and ready for success in the near future to win games. And, you know, maybe he makes some noise, but I am very, very excited for Shea Yield. I'm, I'm really excited for Shea Coaches Alexander. So that'll do it for the G-Truth. I talked about the conference championships with the Niners Packers, Chiefs, Titans. I think that those are going to be really, really exciting games. Um, I, talked, I talked about the Milwaukee Bucks and Oklahoma State Thunder. Um, more of like uh, what I think about them, not so much an analytically, but, you know, just as a team. And I talked about Giannis' jump shot and... Shea Gildas Alexander's um, ability to learn from CP3 and what, and what he's taken from CP3, which I find amazing and 
I don't know. I, it was just a lot of cool things that, that I that, that I thought over um, the break that I was like, wow, I really want to share that. And I think that's really cool. And, I mean, it, it's always good to, you know, take a break to reboot, refresh, especially uh, mentally and, and uh, gain new ideas and look at things a different way. So that'll do it for the G-Truth. And hopefully I'll see you next time. Peace.